My daughter, Marcella, loves music. She's felt that way really since she was first born. From the very beginning, it was one of the few things that was guaranteed to calm her down. And the good news is I love singing, and a baby is my perfect audience. Marcella appreciates enthusiasm in singing, not necessarily quality, which is a good fit for me. Singing is actually one of the first things I did when Marcella and I officially met one December day. The doctors handed her to me, wrapped up in a blanket with her little head sticking out of the top, and I had my first realization that this was really not going to be like the movies. You know how in the movies, newborn babies are soft and downy looking, and they open their little eyes and blink up at their parents, emanating love and warmth. My daughter was red and funny looking, her eyes scrunched up and her mouth opened in an itty bitty wail. I was a little startled to find that the doctors and the nurses, not to mention my husband, seemed to think that she belonged to me. Possibly, she was startled, too. And so, looking down at her, unsure about whether this was how I was supposed to be feeling or not, and still a bit dazed from that whole labor thing, I did the only thing I could think of. I began to sing a lullaby that my mother had sung to me and that her mother had sung to her. Lula, 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 bye, bye in your mama's arms a-creepin'. We brought my daughter home soon, and I kept singing that song and added the other lullabies I remembered. Soon we had a repertoire. You start with Lula Lula, then it's Hush Little Baby, then Sleep Baby Sleep, which transitions very nicely to Sleep My Child, and finally Tender Shepherd, the lullaby from Peter Pan. In the first few weeks, when Marcella really wouldn't sleep and I was desperate, I sang anything and everything I could think of, including the song we started with this morning, and some Christmas carols, it was December when she was born, a couple of country songs, and then eventually I just hummed. And finally I gave up and let her sleep in my arms on the couch, which is what she wanted anyway. But the original lineup, those five songs, is what really stuck what I still sing to her when I sing her to sleep at night. A couple of those songs, like Lula Lula, are what I remember my mother singing to me. Others are ones that I heard somewhere and loved. But the thing is, when it's 2 a.m. and your baby is a week old and you're trying to come up with a steady lullaby repertoire because you need something you can sing without thinking, well, you don't always get the words just right. Sometimes I knew the words weren't quite right, and I didn't care. I remember one night I could not remember how sleep my child went, so I just hummed along and thought about it and came up with something that rhymed and made at least a little bit of sense. And those are the words that came to mind the next night and the next, and now they're how I sing the lullaby. Sometimes I changed the words so that they would feel more personal, more special, as with the second verse of Tender Shepherd. I wanted to put in something with Marcella's name, so I moved some words around and came up with what I wanted to say, what I wanted her to hear just before I put her down to bed. 
the lullabies that my mother sang to me, of course, I remembered perfectly, so I sang those just right. Except that when I talked to my mother about them, I found out that actually they weren't right at all. It seems she'd been up at 2 a.m. with her daughter. That would be me, although I think I was actually much better behaved than Marcella. And that my mother, too, couldn't remember all the words. Hush, little baby, you might know words about Papa and a mockingbird. In my family, we sing, hush, little baby, hush that chatter. Mama's going to buy you a golden platter. If that golden dish should break, Mama's going to bake you a birthday cake. By the end of the song, you end up with a jar of honey. <laughs> and it turns out that we've been pronouncing Lula Lula wrong all this time, over three generations. I found a clip on YouTube, of course, of the original song, or, or one version of the original. It was sung by Paul Robeson, and my mother does remember her mother telling her that. But of course, it's la 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 bye bye, which makes much more sense when you think about it. For my family, though, it will always be the Lula Lula song. Generations of women singing the wrong thing to their babies at night. By now, you may feel that you are rather intimately acquainted with lullaby practices in my home, but are perhaps wondering what exactly I think this has to do with Wes or ethical culture, or really anything that we might usually be talking about on a Sunday morning. After all, what does it matter if I change a few words in the lullabies I sing, or if I sing the ones I remember from my childhood? Do the words really matter that much anyway? Well, you tell me. Do words matter? Words and language are always a topic of hot debate in liberal religious congregations. I know they have been here. We use funny or unusual words for some things. What is a platform, anyway, visitors may ask. Am I standing on it, or am I saying it? <laughs> and how about that piece of paper in your hand? It's a bulletin. No, it's an order of service. No, it's a program. Words are important because they carry with them the power of all the experiences, assumptions, and ideas that we associate with them. When I spent that week with you last spring getting to know the community and giving you a chance to get to know me before asking me to join you, I got a lot of questions about words. Knowing that I came from the Unitarian Universalist tradition, some folks were worried that I would bring with me words that wouldn't feel right to them. Of course, most Unitarian Universalists would probably worry about the same thing. <laughs> In a tradition that honors diversity, there is plenty of conversation about words. So I knew when I began my leadership here that there would be some words that would be tricky for folks, and I asked people to bear with me if I sometimes got things wrong. But one of the most interesting things about my first six months here has been the surprises I've had around words. The words that get people going and the ones that people don't seem to mind at all. We talk about lay people here, or lay leaders, often to differentiate them from Mary and me, the clergy leaders. That's a word that I think of as most often associated with the Christian tradition, but it works here for people. Early in my time at West, I used the word pastoral to refer to the kind of counseling and support I provide. 
Someone called me on it, saying that that was not an ethical culture word, and I was a little chagrined and made a note. Imagine my surprise to find it a few weeks later listed in the American Ethical Union bylaws as one of the functions of a leader. Specifically, the bylaws read, the leaders of the ethical culture movement shall be responsible for the performance of pastoral functions, the conduct of the religious meetings, and in general, ministering to the spiritual life of the membership. <laughs> I think I might go ahead and use that word. <laughs> the point here is that it's difficult to mandate what words do and don't work in a community because they are so personal. A word that feels scary or just doesn't fit to one of us might evoke wonderful memories for someone else. My colleague, Reverend Barbara Tenhove, wrote about this topic a few years ago, addressing some similar conversations about words in the congregation she served. She wrote, one way that has helped me understand words is to imagine words as containers, boxes, if you will, which hold in them the meaning. Sometimes more than one meaning fits in a box. For instance, a word as simple and complex as love. And sometimes one meaning has many boxes. Words like couch, divan, and sofa all mean pretty much the same thing. But no matter how many words we use to describe meaning, the words can never actually replace what they symbolize. Words, she wrote, contain ideas and feelings but they are not those ideas and feelings. Barbara asked her congregation to be open to words, to try hard to realize that sometimes a word that was difficult for them was very meaningful for someone else, and vice versa. If words are containers holding in them all of our experiences, our imaginings, our associations, then one of the things we can do is try to ask each other more about those experiences, to get at what we mean when we use a certain word. Sometimes we find that we are talking about the same thing, and all that divides us is semantics. I'm often interested in the etymology of words, where they come from, and I think that that can help us to understand each other, to get at the root of what a word might mean to someone else even when that word is difficult for us. As you know, I pretty am pretty adamant about referring to West as a religious community. That religious word, though, although it was, if you noticed, in the AEU bylaws, it means different things to different people. I liked learning a little bit more about the word from that same piece by Barbara Tenhove. She reminds us that religion comes from the Latin word ligare, which talks about what binds us together, like ligaments. Religion, she writes, doesn't necessarily have to mean a belief in the supernatural. It can simply mean the ties that bind. I like that definition. And I know that for some of you, the word still doesn't feel quite right. But I appreciate your openness, your attempt to understand what the word means for me. Felix Adler, by the way, who founded Ethical Culture, had this to say about it. He said that ethical culture is a religion for those who are looking for a religion and a philosophy for those who are looking for a philosophy. Obviously someone who understood a little bit about congregational politics. 
So sometimes what we think divides us turns out to be semantics, to be different words for the same thing. And while those words can be powerful, we're also able to talk about them, to understand them, to give each other a little room, and to connect with each other about the deeper meanings behind them. But what about the times when it's not just semantics? When the words we use really indicate some major differences in our thinking? How do we stay in conversation then? And what's the point, anyway? I have two answers for that. One that has to do with our work outside our walls, and one about who we are inside. Outside, we strive to be the kind of community that plays well with others, that engages in interfaith work and with different kinds of people, all working together to create justice in the world. In fact, as we've been talking about the direction of social justice at West in the last few months, I have heard again and again a desire to expand our interfaith work, to really become a presence in the interfaith community in DC. Well, to be able to do that, we're going to, be ha we're going to have to be comfortable working with, talking with, and sometimes being at a worship service with people who have different beliefs and who certainly use different language. We'll have to become adept at doing some translating, but also, I think, open to learning from the people we work with, open to hearing words that might not work for our community, but that hold an important truth for others. I'm not just talking about respect here, although that's important. I'm talking about the willingness to really engage with people who are different from ourselves and to be open to what kind of transformation that might bring to our own thinking. My other reason has to do with who we are here inside our walls. As we grow, attracting new members, opening our doors to more and more people, we need to be aware that those folks will bring with them their own language. They'll have their own words that hold meaning and their own words that don't, their own take on the words that drive them crazy or just don't feel relevant to their lives. Part of welcoming people is helping them to feel comfortable, being willing to both teach them and learn from them. And so I ask you all the same thing that Barbara asked of the community she served, to keep an open heart, to listen for what people mean instead of only what they say, to be respectful of the words that don't work for other people, and respectful of the words that do. You know, in a liberal religious movement, and especially in one that is as comparatively young as ethical culture, founded just about 130 years ago, we are given the opportunity to make up our own words, to decide what has meaning for us and what doesn't. Even in our own history here at West and in the movement as a whole, words have evolved. Felix Adler first called someone in my position a lecturer, which then eventually evolved into leader, perhaps because people balked at the idea of being lectured to on Sunday morning. So sometimes we make up new words, words that seem to have the gravitas that we're looking for, that get at the meaning we are trying to evoke without the baggage that old words bring with them. 
Sometimes, though, those old words are important, too. Part of my lullaby lineup for Marcella is Sleep, Baby, Sleep, which we heard after the meditation. I sing, though, some of the old words about guardian angels sent down to watch her while she sleeps. Now, my own belief system doesn't really include guardian angels, but those words still hold meaning for me because they've been sung to me and because they say part of what I want to tell Marcella, that she is loved and cared for and guarded. When she's older, we can have a conversation about what guardian angels really mean for me and for her and for other people who might understand them differently than I do. Right now, I just sing the words and wrap my love around them. That need for old words comes up at funny times, in lullabies, and in families. I remember a memorial service I did a few years ago. It was for an older woman whose family described her as a long-lapsed Catholic, hadn't been to church in years, didn't believe in any of that stuff anymore. They wanted readings about life, memories about the reality of who she was, good humanist pieces that fit in with what she and they believed. And they wanted the 23rd Psalm. <laughs> you know the one, Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. For this family, those words held some memory, some meaning that transcended their literal definition. It felt important to have them as they said goodbye to their mother. Sometimes, we just want to hear the old words. There's room, I think, I hope, for old words and new words, for evoking memories and for creating new language, language that honors the truth we feel most deeply. After the platform, our pickup chorus will sing a lullaby that was written quite recently that weaves in all our wishes for a child using language that feels both comfortable and beautiful. And sometimes that's what we need to do, to choose words that we can speak with integrity, that open up the space to everyone in the room, that welcome in different viewpoints and different experiences into a kind of universal conversation. We have that freedom in our religious tradition to experiment, to try language on for size, and to create new language when we need to. It's quite a gift, and one that asks for our thoughtful and deliberate participation. And sometimes, sometimes, we want to join Eliza Doolittle, who sings out her frustration in My Fair Lady. Words, 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 I'm so sick of words. I get words all day through, first from him, now from you. Is that all you blighters can do? I did look up the word blighter, by the way, and decided it was all right to share on Sunday morning. It just means an irritating fellow. Well, it's not all we can do. In our meditation this morning, Mary reminded us of the importance of silence, of the power we find when we leave words behind and simply sit with one another. It allows us, I think, to listen more carefully to feel and to connect without the constraints of language. 
at the very end of my lullaby routine, after all five songs, with their old words and some new words and misremembered words, I repeat the last verse of Tender Shepherd for Marcella. But that final time, I just hum in that soft sound, in my wordless music. I hope she knows what it is that I'm saying. As we close our time together, soothed and lulled by our music, and ready to jam a little bit too, that's good. May you go back into life to speak your truth, to listen to each other, to try on words and decide what feels right. And sometimes, may you have those moments when no word is right, when all that we need is to simply be together. At those times, may you have the courage to hush to listen and to sing. <laughs>